Good morning to you if you're joining us uh, in, the live stream, in the live stream, whether at home or in the home hubs. Uh, it's great that we can be together. Uh, if you don't happen to know who I am, my name's Cameron. I'm the Young Adults Pastor here at CGCC, and I have the privilege of continuing our series. We've just started a new series in the book of Malachi, and I hope you've been enjoying it, whether you've just been reading through it yourself or you've just started in your small groups. I've been really loving Malachi for its simplicity. You know, we've come from a book of Hebrews, which, let's be honest, at times it was difficult to get your head around what was going on, but Malachi is very simple, practical book. Uh, and so it's been really encouraging just to reflect on, on a different type of writing. Despite that, I think it's worth spending a short amount of time just reminding us what the context of Malachi is. Because I'm willing to bet that not all of us just have that sitting in our brains, other than the fact that Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. And so, uh, the book of Malachi, surprise, surprise, it was was about the prophet Malachi who delivered a message to the people of Israel at a very unique time in their history. You see, a couple of hundred years earlier, Israel had been wiped out by the Babylonians. We read about that in Lamentations, right? God's judgment had come upon them, they had been exiled out of the land and had to live in captivity in Babylon for over 70 years. But God graciously brought them back. But he brought them back as a different people. You see, they no longer were a great nation. They no longer ruled other nations. In fact, by the time they came back to the land to rebuild, they were poor, they were bruised, they were broken, they were struggling, and they were ruled by a foreign power. But we read in Ezra and Nehemiah, you'll remember that, we did studies in Ezra not long ago, that the people began to rebuild. They rebuilt the walls and they rebuilt the temple and they were encouraged to do this by two significant prophets called Zechariah and Haggai and they were encouraging them by the word of God and saying to them, if you rebuild the temple, if you rebuild the walls, there will be a revival again. Your people will be great once again. And so they did that. They rebuilt slowly but surely, and they finished, and yet the revival didn't come. The nation wasn't restored to its glory. In fact, they continued to struggle. And the years went by, year after year after year, and they were still ruled by a foreign army, and they still struggled for daily needs. And so they were disappointed people. And this is where Malachi enters into it. He comes to a disappointed Israel, a people who were bruised, who had hoped for so much more, and as we saw last week, a people who had begun to doubt God's promise to them. Was there really going to be a great revival? Was there really going to be, were they going to be a great nation again? I mean, look at us. How are we going to rule others if we're struggling just to provide for ourselves. They'd hoped for so much more. And so Malachi is speaking into this situation, into this context. And as we come to today's passage, we're going to see that this disappointment they were feeling, this doubt that they were feeling about who God was and His provision for them was leading them to complacency in their relationship with God, leading them specifically to complacency in their worship of Him. And so open your Bibles to the book of Malachi in chapter 1. 
We're going to read through this passage. We're actually just going to go through this passage uh, verse by verse. Uh, But before we do, uh, why don't we pray together? I invite you to pray for us as we um, look at God's Word. Father, we ask this morning that you once again open our hearts to hear your Word. We ask that you make much of your Son, that you make our hearts alive again to the beauty of Christ. And we ask, Lord, that in anything we hear, that we'll know that it's only by your power, the power of your Spirit that lives in us, that we can do anything. And so help us to rely upon you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, we're going to start by reading out the first verse. So look at verse 6 of chapter 1, verse 6 of chapter 1. We'll just read that out because it's really going to set up the main issue that's going on at the moment in the Israelite people. Look at verse 6. It says this, A son honours his father and a servant his master. If then I am your father, where is my honour? And if I am your master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? So you see that this text really forms the issue that's going on with Israel in the form of a question. And this is one of the great things about Malachi. One of the reasons why it's so easy to understand is it just asks questions. In fact, the pattern of these questions is there's 10 key questions throughout the book of Malachi and six key topics. And the pattern always is that God asks them a question and then he gives a hypothetical response or what he thinks they would say back to that question. And then God lays down the evidence for why his question is right. And then he asks them a series of other questions that only indicate further that they're in the wrong. So that's the pattern that we're going to see today. And we see it right here, right? God highlights the issue. He says, a son naturally honours his father and a slave his master, but where is my honour? If I'm your father, where is my honour? If I'm your master, where is my fear? The Lord of heaven's armies asked this. And so we see the main issue here is that Israel were dishonouring God. They were making light of his great name. And yes, this indictment is directed at the priests. We see that in the text. But we know from the wider context of the book that it wasn't only the priests that had issue. It was the wider community that was struggling with this same attitude, this same difficulty. And that's really our first point here. That We'll see it here in the the beginning of the chapter, in the middle of the chapter, and at the end of the chapter. In fact, this whole chapter is about the fact that our God is a great king who is worthy of both honour and fear. You see, it seems that people had forgotten who their God was. It seems that they'd begun to bring him down in their minds, to make him less than who he really was. You know, this was the God who, who as the, earlier in chapter 1, Shabu Haidah last week, this was the God who graciously called them His people. Not because they were good, because they were terrible, actually, but God graciously called them. This was the God who, who actually rescued them out of Egypt by His miraculous power. The God who, who thundered and shook the earth when He gave the Ten Commandments. The God who graciously drove out the other nations, showed that he was a God of all peoples, not just one people. A God who graciously put up with their sin 
who, who caused them to be exiled out of their land. The God who brought them back in. And yet, after all this, the people had forgotten who he really was. How great and how awesome he really was. And you know, in these two questions, I think we see two important elements for us to reflect upon about what it means to be one of God's people, of what it meant to be an Israelite. You see, for the Israelites, being one of God's people meant that they honoured God as their father, the one who loved them, who leaded them, who, who provided for them, but they also feared him. They reverently feared him as their master the one who was the creator and sustainer of all things, the one who, like we've been singing about, is is holy and, and awesome, who is worthy of all glory and honor, and as this text says, the one who is the Lord of heaven's armies. They honored him as father, but they also feared him as master. And you know what? I think these two same principles are worth reflecting upon for us. Because yes, we're under a new covenant, but I think this has always been the marker of the people of God. In fact, we saw both of those elements in the book of Hebrews, did we not? We saw the wonderful truth, how we have been brought close to God, that we can approach Him boldly and freely. And yet we also saw that we approach Him reverently, awestruck by the God that He is. We've been adopted as his children. He loves us. And yet we still approach him with this holy fear that he is the God of all things. And I would suggest that some of the issues in our Christian life come because we misunderstand who God is, just like the Israelites have here. We misunderstand in these two areas. Either we only honour God as Father, and, and you see this, right? We bring him down to our level. We lose the gravity of who He is, and we become almost casual in our approach to God. I don't know if you've seen people like this or caught this in your own attitude, but we become too casual. God just becomes our best buddy. He kind of cheers us on in life, and we almost bring Him down too far. We forget that He is King and ruler of our lives that we only stand before Him because of His gracious offering of His own Son, that we stand before Him only because of the righteousness of another. But on the flip side, we can fear God only as Master. We can treat God as some distant judge who always looks down at us with a frown on His face, just waiting for us to slip up. We can make Him someone who is not close at all. And perhaps this morning you recognize yourself in one of those aspects. Perhaps you see God as some harsh, distant judge who you fear as master, you know that, but you don't understand him and honor him as father. Or perhaps you're someone this morning who is very casual. God has been brought down so far that he's just kind of another thing in your life. He's not worthy of total obedience, not worthy of your whole life. Now, it's not that we're looking to be balanced here. We're not looking to say, oh, I treated God more like a father yesterday, so today I better like step back and treat him more like a holy and awesome God. It's that we're trying to be biblical. We've actually heard about it, Lil read out those verses before that, that really encapsulated it there. 
That the, the, the same God who wrote that we're beloved children of God also wrote that we should work at our salvation with fear and trembling. You see, we walk in this reality as the people of God. They're people who are beloved, adopted children, but who recognize the God that we serve and how holy and great He is. We walk in both those realities. And we must not forget that. And so Israel had fallen into error and they'd brought God down and were dishonoring His name. But the next question, you see it at the end there, the question that follows is, the hypothetical question that God says, how, Israel says, how have we made light of your name? The end of verse 6 there. And so he's going to lead into that because wrong belief about who God is always leads and flows out in our actions. And so look at the rest of this text with me. It really sets us up for the, the rest of the text, answering this question, how have they made light of God's name? Look at verse 7. By offering polluted food upon, the, upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there would be one among you who would shut the doors that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. <laughs> so there you have it. God's laid down the answer to this question. He's shown them the evidence that they're dishonoring his name. And really, at the heart of it, what we see here is they're dishonoring his name through improper worship, through dishonest, through impure worship, through half-hearted worship. Did you catch what they were doing? They were dishonoring God's table. They were dishonoring God's altar. And now we need to keep in mind for a second how important the altar was to the Israelites' practice in the Old Covenant. You see, I think we often just think of the, old, the altar and the, and the sacrifices as just a thing for the forgiveness of sins or just for the covering over of sins. Or we, we only think about it in that terms. But really, the altar was central to all of worship in Israel's time. You see, not only did they bring sin offerings, but they brought peace offerings, they brought free will offerings, they brought thanksgiving offerings. In fact, how many times do you, when you read through the Old Testament, when God comes through, his, through for His people in a mighty way or through for an individual, what do they immediately do? They offer sacrifices to God, a pleasing aroma to Him. It was central to all of their worship. And so we see here that their lack of honour of God, their bringing Him down was to do with their worship of Him. And that's really our second point here, that our great and awesome King desires true, honest and pure worship from His people. But look specifically at what they were doing wrong, because it's interesting to think about. It says in verse 8, they were offering up blind, sick and lame animals to the offering table. Or in other words, they're giving God the worst of what they have, and keeping the best for themselves. 
And this actually goes directly against what God's law had commanded them. You'll see in Leviticus 22.20, it says this, You shall not offer anything that has a blemish, for it will not be acceptable for you. And when anyone offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a vow, or as a free will offering from the herd or from the flock, to be accepted, it must be perfect. There shall be no blemish in it. Animals blind, disabled, or mutilated, or having discharge, or an itch, or scabs, you shall not offer to the Lord, or give them to the Lord as a food offering on the altar." It could not be more clear, right? It stresses that the offering had to be without blemish. It had to be perfect. And yet that's not what Israel was doing. They were giving half-heartedly, very little effort. There wasn't much thought behind what they were doing at all. In fact, it actually reminds me, now that Christmas season is approaching, I remembered a, a story that a friend told me you know, we all get gifts usually at Christmas, and, and let's be honest, we all have those gifts from certain individuals, and we can just tell when we open it how little thought they've actually put in to getting us a gift. Like, little, no thought at all. We just know those gifts. You can pitch them now, they're always from the, the distant aunt or, the, or, the, or someone else in your family. Um, but I remember a friend was telling me that they'd given a gift to one of their friends the previous Christmas and then had that same gift re-gifted back to them accidentally the next Christmas. I mean, you can think about the situation, right? Oh, that's just lying around our house. No one's used it for ages. In fact, I don't even remember where we got it. Why don't we just wrap that up and give it to so-and-so? Not realising that that was their exact gift. You just can see the lack of thought, the lack of effort. And this is kind of Israel's mentality, right? Well, we've got these sick, lame animals. We don't really need them. We're not going to use them. They're kind of good for nothing. So why don't we just bring them to the sacrifice? I mean, God doesn't actually need perfect animals. God doesn't need anything. And so they bring them. And this was their mentality. And looking at verse 9, we show that it shows that God will not accept this kind of offering. In fact, so serious of an offence this is, is God says in verse 10 that he would rather them just shut the temple doors, stop bringing anything to me at all, than bringing these offerings to me. To stop. And I think God has such a strong reaction to this because it reveals the hearts of the people. It reveals that these people were forgetting who, they, who their God really was. You know, they wouldn't give this offering to the governor. They, they wouldn't give it to someone important in their, in their own in context, but they bring it before their God. What does that say about them? But it's also worth remembering the context that we spoke about, that this was a people under pressure. They didn't have a lot. They were feeling the squeeze of, of financially or in terms of what they had. Maybe it was more just a mentality of, well, you know, if we give God the best, what, what are we going to have for ourselves? But you see, this actually comes from a heart that doesn't trust in God's provision. You see that heart back in the early parts of chapter 1 that Shabu touched on, a heart that's doubting, well, if I give the best, will God provide for us as a nation? Will He provide for us as, as a people? And so we see here that their inadequate worship actually goes back to a lack of trust and belief in who God actually was and who God actually is. 
but it's going to give us even further insight into their hearts. I love, look, love the next verse. Look at verse 11. It gives us an insight to, 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 I guess, more deeply what was going in, going on in their hearts. Verse 11. From the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Well, I said already that this is going to be stressed time and time again in our verses. He's reminding them again, my name is great. I will get a pure offering. The nations will glorify my name. And then he continues, verse 12 laying down the charges again, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is, its food may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence or is lame or sick, and this is the offering that you bring. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So what we see here really is a doubling down from God. You have dishonored my name, and here's exactly what you've done. But there's extra details here worth reflecting on. Verse 13 states their whole mentality towards worship. Do you see that? They said, what a weariness this all is. And they snort at it. Do you see that? So you can see their whole attitude was wrong. And even more than that, look at verse 14. It says that what they were doing was they were vowing the best in their flock, saying, God, I'm going to give this to you. And then they were going back on their word and giving God the worst. In other words, they were becoming a people who said one thing, but actually did the opposite. And then finally, the passage finishes off by reiterating once again, for I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. I hope you've been able to see that start, middle, end of this text, stressing how great God is who he is and what he is worthy of, and that he will be praised. You see, this passage paints for us a picture of a great and awesome king who rules over all things. A king who is worthy of honour and fear and praise. But it also paints for us a picture of a people who had become lazy, dishonest, impure in their worship of him begrudging in their worship, whether it be because of the pressures around them or their own doubting of God's provision to them, it's led them to a place where God is no longer this great king worthy of their whole lives, but he is just someone else who they can give the very worst to. And ultimately, I think the most striking statement in this passage is that God will not accept this offering from them and he will not accept them as a people. And so the question is, what do we do with a passage like this for us? I don't think it's a complicated one. But as we highlighted, we serve the same God as Israel did. He hasn't changed. He's a God who's still worthy of honour as a father and fear as a master. He's a God who still desires the same thing, true, honest, pure 
worship. But obviously, when we read this passage, some things have changed. Uh, We no longer have an altar or a temple, or I don't know, maybe you do at home, I don't. We definitely don't have a sacrificial system or animals we can offer up. I, I really hope you don't do that at home. And yet we're still called to worship all the same. And so it leads us to ask the question, what does the New Testament say about worship? What is our worship as God's people now? Well, believe it or not, it's a bit more broad than Sunday morning songs. It goes a bit more beyond that. Look at Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Here's what it says. Keeping in mind the sacrificial system of the Old Testament, it says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercy of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So worship in our lives, rather than bringing animals before God, we bring our very selves our whole lives as living sacrifices. That's what worship looks like in the Christian life. But as D.L. Moody says, the problem with a living sacrifice is it keeps crawling off the altar. And this ultimately gives us a very simple application point for this passage. Where in your life might you be displaying a similar attitude and practice to these Israelites? Where in your whole life with God might you be displaying this similar attitude and practice to these Israelites? Where might you be giving God second best, giving Him the leftovers, not actually giving your whole lives to Him as the one who is worthy of everything you've got, but kind of just the corners and the edges? You know, it it, it could be in different areas. It might be with your time actually spent in God's Word, in prayer, before Him as your God. It might be that this is relegated to the edges, that that this only really happens if more pressing things don't come up in your week and your day. Does God just get the leftover bits? If there even is leftover bits, let's be honest. And I've been asking myself this same question lately. As I wrestle with this new kind of busyness that has entered into my life, whose name is Nora, but I'm wrestling with the fact that, well, how do I make time? But he's the king and lord of my life. He's my true father. He's our true father, worthy of all honor and praise. And our attitude is often one where we relegate God to the edges. And ultimately, we must trust God for his provision for us. You know, on that point, I've been learning that it's really easy for me to say, ah, it's just baby life. Things are just busy. It's just a season I'm going through. It's just Nora, she won't, you know, she, I can't get the time, same time that I used to. It's actually really easy to say that. But do you know what's true? It actually comes from a heart that doesn't fully trust that God can provide for me if I carve out that time. If I make that space for just sitting with Him. You know, to be honest, church, you don't actually have to work that extra shift You don't actually have to earn that little bit extra money to be a bit more comfortable and secure. You don't actually have to have the house perfectly tidy and every list done on that, job done on that to-do list. You actually don't even need that sleep-in that you feel like you so desperately need. You know, part of trusting God is knowing 
that he doesn't want us to compromise on spending time with him, that he knows what's on our plate and yet he still desires us to come before him. For some of us, there's always more to do. Remember the story of Mary and Martha in the New Testament. Martha is constantly going around and doing thing after thing after thing, but Mary has chosen the good place at Jesus' feet. There can sometimes feel like there's always more to do, but we can actually lay it aside, prioritize spending time with God, and trust that He will multiply our time in other areas, in enabling us to, to do them still. It's part of trusting God's provision. But there could be other areas in your life where this is relevant as well. Perhaps it's actually in your giving financially to the church or to others. Maybe that's a reluctant thing. Maybe it's become a begrudging thing. Maybe it's something you only do if you have enough left for yourself. Or perhaps it's in your serving of others. Perhaps serving other Christians and your fellow brothers and sisters has become something that you kind of just... It's just faded out of your life. You just simply don't have the time. That's also part of our worship of God. Or perhaps more pressingly, in this season, it might be our place of worship. You know, we don't have an altar, but we do have a church. Has physically gathering with God's people become a burden to you? Has it become something that's just, it's too hard? And and I get it, right? I understand that that it's not easy at this time. It might be more comfortable to actually stay at home, to not bother with the mask and the, you know, it might not be an ideal amount of people in church. It, It might be just actually too much effort to gather. But let me encourage you, church, to remember who we're gathering before. To remember that we as a people are called to be together to worship his holy name. You know, and I would love it, rather than having space left over in all of our slots this week, whether it's home hubs or physical gatherings here, I would love it if they filled up every week because people were so keen to be back together encourage you to think whether your attitude has become one that is, oh, it's just too difficult, I'll just wait, wait till it gets a bit easier. But we have this gracious privilege of coming before our awesome God to bring him praise and glory. encourage you to think through your attitude with that. But ultimately, the question under all these questions is, has worship, has your life as a sacrifice for God For him alone, has it just become a wearisome task for you? Has it just become a begrudging thing? Has it just become another thing that you do in your week? Is your relationship with God no longer filled with with joy and service of him, but really it's just become something you just, I guess I'll spend time, I guess I'll come. But do you know what? Our hearts are fickle and we drift towards complacency. We drift towards what these Israelites were like, to bring God down, to not give him our whole lives, but to give the corners, edges of our lives. We drift towards that. We all feel that in our hearts and we've got to fight against that. We actually have to fight against that. 
We must remember who God is and what he desires of us. And yet at the same time, this passage points us forward. We need to remember that this is the last book of the Old Testament. You know, what an appropriate passage and what it foreshadows for us. You see, God pronounces to his people, Israelites, for the last time that he will not accept this impure, dishonest offering from their hands and he will not accept them. What an appropriate passage to lead into the New Testament where God says, I'm going to provide the pure and perfect sacrifice for you. One without blemish. You know, the wonderful truth of the gospel is that God did not hold back. He did not begrudgingly give his son. He did not half-heartedly give his son. He gave him up for his people willingly, out of love for them, completely and wholly to secure their salvation. What an awesome God. And do you know what? The things that I mentioned before, they'll become a weary to-do list unless your heart is captured again by the beauty of Christ. Unless your heart is, is in awe of the fact that God would so graciously give his son for you and for me, that's the motivation for us to to spend time in his word. That's the motivation for us to gather with his people. That's the motivation for us to, to give freely to him in service and of our, of our resources because we know that he has already graciously given us all things. As Romans 8 says, not only does he give us his son, but he will graciously give us all things. And part of that all things is his very presence. His very spirit with us so that we can actually depend upon him to give us the strength to give our lives to him, to give all of ourselves to him. And so church, I encourage you as we, as we, as we close, as we finish this passage, not to just take these things and go, oh, I'm just going to try harder, but also to remember, to gaze upon the beauty of our great and awesome God who sent his son for you, who equipped you with his spirit, that you can ask and go to him in those areas where we all see in our lives, where we know that we would love to be giving more of ourselves to God, to ask him for the strength and power of his spirit, to ask him to multiply our time, to ask him to do the work that is necessary in us to live for his glory and his glory alone. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for this passage. Lord, it's confronting because it displays a people who forget who you are. It displays a people who do not honour your name in the way that it is due, who are dishonest in their worship and in their practice. And to be honest, Lord, we can all relate to that. We all see areas of our lives where we, we feel that. And yet, Lord, help us to rejoice in the fact that the, the wonderful gospel has been revealed to us. The mystery is no longer a mystery, that you have died for us, that, God, you willingly gave your son for us, that you did not hold back. 
And so, Lord, help us to worship this glorious truth, to worship you and to ask your spirit to do the work in our lives, to actually practically put into practice things that we need to, but dependent upon your spirit to help us and encourage our hearts, Lord. Ultimately, we want to be a people at Canterbury Gardens who give all of ourselves to you, who recognize that our whole life has but one purpose, to live for the glory of your great name. But we need you to help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.